Isaiah 58, 1-8 Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Good morning. Good to see you all awake this morning. I remember when I was about probably 10 years old, I was trying to figure out how to make life work. I had this vague sense of God, but it was this sense of, okay, I need to figure out this God so I can figure out how to get what I want out of life. I remember just praying and praying and wanting things so bad, whether it was to have my little league team win a game or to get what I wanted for Christmas or whatever it was. And if I tried really hard wanting something, maybe it would work, and that didn't really work very well. So at one point I thought, well, maybe maybe I need to do the opposite. I'll really pretend like I really want the opposite of what I want, and then maybe it'll work. And that sort of worked, but then it didn't work. But what that is interesting is that that's been the goal of man since the beginning of time, to somehow figure out this God who reigns in heaven, who has all authority, how do we get his blessing? Man's been struggling with this since the beginning of time. And over history, we haven't gotten a whole lot more sophisticated than I was at 10 years old. Think about it for a minute, you know, and a lot of history, somebody had a bad crop, right? And then they saw their neighbor and saw that their neighbor got a good crop, the wheat was really good that year. So he'd go to his neighbor and said, well, what'd you do? Said, well, I did these four sacrifices to this idol and I had a good crop. So the first guy says, well, I'm going to try that. 
And after a while, you develop whole systems of religion of trying to figure out how to somehow get God's blessing. A big part of it is that we figure out God must be like us. He demands something in return, so we better figure out what that is. We need a way to control this uncontrollable God if we want life to work well. In our passage today in the book of Isaiah, chapter 58, Isaiah is challenging Israel about their attitude about God, about their sense of trying to bargain with God to get his blessing. If I do this, then God, you're required to bless me. And let me say that all humans try this. Every one of us. It's part of our human makeup. We think that God is like us and like our world. Everyone has an angle. God must too. But Isaiah is saying this to Israel and to us. It's time to grow up in your relationship with God. And it's time to begin to respond to God as he really is. Not as you imagine him to be. And it's the same message for us. It's time for each of us to stop trying to figure out how to get God's blessing and learn to live in the reality of God's free gift of grace. We already have his blessing. We already have his love. We already have his grace. And so let's begin to live as though that is true. But what does that look like? Well, Isaiah 58 will help us begin to live in that reality of his grace. Let's pray together. Lord, we admit we are human and we are like the world around us. We think if we do certain things that we should get your blessing in return. Oh, Lord, open our eyes that we might see the blessings we already have through your son, Jesus Christ, Father, and begin to walk in the reality of that, to be the people of God you call us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 through 5, the problem is exposed. Listen to verse 1 again. Cry aloud, don't hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Isaiah is told by God essentially here, shout out to the people and tell them what their sins are. Confront them about their transgressions. But what does he say their transgression is? Verse 2, they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. As if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask me for righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Now, I think if I were an Israelite reading this, hearing Isaiah preach, I'd go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. You're saying our sin is delighting in God? Our sin is seeking his face? What can be wrong with that? How is that a problem? Sounds pretty good to me. Why are you upset with us, Isaiah? But notice verse 3. Notice their response. Why have we fasted? And you see it not. Why have we humbled ourselves? And you take no knowledge of it. You see, the problem is not that they're seeking God, that they should do. But the problem is their motive. In seeking God, God always looks first at the heart, right? And he sees into our hearts. And so Isaiah uses fasting. I think he could have used other 
religious rituals, but he uses fasting because it's so clearly an act of self-denial. And he uses it as as an example to say, you're doing this religious act, this act of self-denial, but your attitude is, okay, God, I did my part. Why, Why don't you show up? You know, we got an agreement here, right? If I do this act of self-denial, if I fast for a few hours or a day or two days or three days, I put myself out and I expect you in return to bless my life. In other words, they are trying to use what you might call rule keeping. If I keep the rules, then God must bless me. They're bargaining with God trying to manipulate him into giving them what they want, which is a blessed life. Good crops, etc., etc. Comfort, good health. And they're frustrated because God isn't keeping his side of the bargain. He isn't coming through. And let me remind you again that this is an approach to God that we all struggle with at points in our life. Guy Jatani in his book, With, a book that many of the women studied last summer, says this. Christian Smith, a sociologist from the University of North Carolina, spent years studying the religious lives of teenagers. He concluded that most view God as a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. Okay, he's there to be my butler, to bring me what I want, and to be a cosmic therapist to fix and heal the things in my life that I have problems with. God exists to help them through their problems and achieve what they desire. Smith said that those who are holding this view of God are primarily concerned with one's own happiness in contrast to focusing on glorifying God, learning obedience, or serving others. When asked why most teens view God as a butler or therapist, Smith concluded, and get this, it was because most of their parents hold the same understanding of God. He goes on to say this. When you approach God this way, what he calls life from God, God carries no inherent value. Like everything else in the consumer worldview, God's value is determined by his usefulness. He orbits around us. What have you done for me lately? Could be the mantra of this perspective. Religion is a means to an end, a more spiritual method of achieving our desires, whether they're the products of advertising or of nobler sources. Those who relate to God primarily as the almighty provider hold a decidedly one-dimensional understanding of him. God gives and we receive. He goes on to say, you know, it's not wrong to ask God for things, but the problem is we place ourselves above him and see him as essentially there to serve us and our desires. Now that, I understand, sounds harsh, but it's something which we all do. It's very interesting to me that if you look at the big picture of Israel, that Isaiah, one of the things we've looked at through the book of Isaiah, is Isaiah confronted Israel about their worship of idols. And what we see when we get to the New Testament, 700 years later, There is no idolatry, at least in terms of worshiping the pagan gods around them. And there were many, all the nations around them and the Romans had many gods. Idolatry has been rooted out of Israel. But this area, 
of trying to do good and religious things to get God's blessing is something, in fact, that became more and more entrenched over time. And it became perfected in the Pharisees, didn't it? They sought God eagerly and purposefully, but for all the wrong reasons. And all man-made religion is like this. Somehow figuring out what I need to do to get God's blessing. But know what they're doing in the midst of their fasting. Verse 3, it says, they're humbling themselves, but, oh, verse 4, Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight. You seek your own pleasure, it says in verse 3. In other words, in their fasting, they're really seeking their own desires, what they want out of life. Verse 4, it says they're actually using it. I don't think, well, perhaps that they were fist fighting, but I think Isaiah uses hyperbole here to say they're actually wanting to be blessed so they can look better than their neighbors. It's all about competition. I want to be blessed. I want God's on my side so that I'll look better than everybody else around me. And think about how this, again, became perfected in the New Testament. Luke chapter 18. This will be a familiar story to you. Verse 9 and following where Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. (laughs) I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. A sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself shall be exalted. So, how do we, in our day and age, do this same thing? Well, you know, if you think about your own life, we commit I'm going to have a regular quiet time, God. I'm going to go to Bible study. I'm going to start helping out in this ministry. But often the motive behind those things, which are good things, is, and I expect something in return, God. I expect you to make my life better. And then suffering happens, difficulty happens, and we get frustrated. And we think, God, just like the Israelites, God, why don't you do your part? I'm doing mine. In Mansions of the Heart by Thomas Ashbrook, he elaborates a bit on this. He says, once we seem to have mastered, in quotes, the disciplined life, pride and presumption can become a real problem. If God does not respond in a predictable way, we may judge ourselves as faithful and God as unfaithful. We think we are suffering these things from God. It's that attitude, and he goes on in the book to say this is, this is typical for Christians at some stage in their spiritual life, but it's a very immature stage. And he challenges us that we need to go deeper with God. So what does that mean to go deeper with God? If that's immaturity, if that's a very immature view of God, then how do we go deeper? What does it look like to go deeper? Well, Isaiah goes on to tell us what God really wants of us. 
Verse 6 and 7, let me read those again. Is this not the fast that I choose, God says, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and, and not to hide yourself from your own family, your own flesh? What's he say that God really wants? What kind of fast, what kind of self-denial is he looking for from us? Well, he's talking about social justice, isn't he? Caring for the hurting. God does want self-denial, but what he wants is us not to live self-centered lives. I'll deny myself to get something for me. He wants us to live a life of self-denial where we are other-centered, where we give our lives away for the sake of others. He wants us to bring life and healing wherever we go. He wants us to have his heart for the hurting, the poor, to live generous, caring lives that everything I have is to help others and bless them. And especially, he says, make sure you're caring for your own family. So this raises a question, perhaps, in your mind. It does not mine. And that is, well, wait a minute. That's doing good works, right? Can't can't we do all those things for the wrong motives too? And the answer is, of course, yes. Yes. We can do those things to try to get God's blessing. But what God really wants, and what Isaiah is trying to get at here, is that what God wants is a heart that isn't trying to earn God's blessing, but rather it's a heart that's learned to rest in the blessings of God already, in his love and care. So now I am free to give my life away for others. That's Christian maturity as we grow in him. Isaiah 55, we studied this a few weeks ago. Verse 1 through 3 says this, Come, everybody who's thirsty, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without Price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Isaiah himself and all the gospel of the New Testament is clear that life, blessing, God's favor, God's grace is a gift. We can't pay for it. It's an absolute gift. So come and eat and feast. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Come, feast on me. Find life in me. God gives us Jesus as a gift that we might have life in him. You see, God's blessing is a gift in Jesus. So by faith in him, we can step out then to say, you've given me life. So I'm going to step out to be a blessing to others, to step in to the lives of the powerless in our society and help them, to become their defender, to help the refugees, the oppressed, the mentally oppressed, to live a generous life where everything I have is for others, not acquiring things to make myself happy, but giving things away to provide for others. That's what God wants of us, a heart to do that. And what will he do in response? He will give us his blessing He wants us to experience the fullness of his blessing. See, we get God's blessing as a byproduct of following and serving and loving him, not by making it our goal and trying to get it. 
that always gets us in trouble. So he says, if we begin to give our lives away and live other-centered lives, what will he give us? His blessing. Verse 8 and following. Verse 8 says, Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. He describes the blessings he longs to give us as a free gift. As number one, light. Light in Scripture is a picture of of understanding, of, of seeing reality, of understanding life, joy, wisdom. Being able to navigate through the darkness, having a headlamp in a dark cave. Just one example of that. The kind of light he wants to give us is is understanding his hand in our suffering. So that we see there's a greater purpose for suffering. That's having God's light in our minds and in our thinking. Rather than being upset because we're suffering and fighting against it, we actually see his purpose in it, and are able to rejoice in his work in the midst of the difficulty. Another blessing he longs to give us, he uses two words there, healing and righteousness in verse 8. In other words, you will find yourself becoming more and more like Jesus. That's God's promise. As you learn to rest in him, you you find your life beginning to change in those areas that you've struggled with in your life. You suddenly see God begin to change in them, not because you worked hard to make it happen, but as a byproduct of drawing near to him and really trusting in his gift of love. And then verse 9 and verse 11. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he'll say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of your finger, the speaking of wickedness, etc. Verse 11. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. I love this picture because what's he describing is God's blessing. He's describing intimacy with him that we call upon him and he's there he says i'm here (laughs) you'll experience his presence in the midst of life unlike verse three where they're saying come on god where are you (laughs) you see when we take this attitude god says i'm here i'm here i'm present i'm with you we'll have intimacy with him he'll guide us and notice something very interesting he doesn't fix our lives he doesn't Take away the problem. In fact, notice what it says. It says, in the scorched places, in the desert, in the difficult places, I will satisfy your desire. In other words, he will be with us in the desert times. He doesn't take us out of them. He keeps us in them, but he is there giving us what we need to endure it with grace and love. And you'll become, he says, like a spring, like an oasis, essentially, in the desert where others can even drink of your life. You'll be giving life to others. I love that picture that God wants us to be an oasis in the midst of the desert as we drink from him, depend on him, rest in his blessing. Then his life flows from us and others can drink in the midst of their desert that they're living in. 
Isn't this a much different picture than the Israelites were living in and we live in a lot of times? Working hard to get God to bless me. And then when suffering comes, we get upset. Why, why don't you fix my life, God? Instead of saying, I have God's blessing, so when the suffering comes, God, thank you, I have your strength in the midst of it. I want to be an oasis in the midst of the desert. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what we can be? Yeah. And then he goes on to say another blessing in verse 12 is that we get a new name. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt and shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Our old name, living under the old system, would be maybe rule keeper. Oh, yeah. He or she, man, they keep the rules. Think about how the world views Christians. Over and over again, when they do surveys, what, what do you think of Christians? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Always that I've seen, the surveys I've seen, their first thing that comes to mind is judgmental. Why? Because many of us are rule keepers, right? We're keeping the rules and, it, and we make sure everybody knows I'm keeping the rules so they feel judged and condemned. The Pharisees were not attractive to this world, were they? People just feel judged by a rule keeper. But God says, I want to give you a new name, a new identity in the world. I want the world to see you with a new name, my people. And in the Hebrew, it's Goder Peretz. (laughs) Goder Peretz. Hard to translate, but essentially it's a repairer of what's broken. A restorer of what's broken. Is that your name in the world? When people look at you, do they think, oh, boy, that person is a repairer of what's broken. (laughs) Here's a person that heals, that brings life into broken lives and into broken situations, that rebuilds broken lives and makes a way for those trapped in the rubble. What he's describing is rebuilding kind of a city, but I think he's really describing mankind. And I think a great description that is Dan Allender in his book, Wounded Heart. He says this, man, as Francis Schaeffer has put it, is a glorious ruin. A stately castle, intricately and masterfully constructed by the hand of an artisan who designed his work with no thought of expense or practicality. But when man, speaking to both men and women, took it on himself to be his God, he ruined everything. Crumbling walls, rotten wood, overgrown gardens. The decay became so extensive that only one with the eyes of a craftsman could see the structural beauty that remained underneath the overgrown foliage and overthrown walls. Nevertheless, it has glory in its form and composition. Man is an amalgamation of dignity and depravity, a glorious ruin. I think that's Isaiah's perspective here. Our world and everyone in it is a glorious ruin that we are to become restorers of broken things. I watched a documentary not too long ago about the white helmets. You may have seen it. These are a group of people in Syria 
that when there's a bombing in Aleppo or whatever country or whatever city they're in, they run to the place where the bomb hit because their entire job is to try to save as many lives as they can. They run to the rubble. They run to where things are falling apart so that they can bring life and healing. They run to the bomb blast seeking to heal and bring life. You may have heard about them last year when they dug a baby out of the rubble that had been in there several days and they saved his life. In the last several years, some 204 white helmets have died trying to help others. 204 have died. They, as as of this week, saved 99,200 lives. Oh, that you and I would be known as white helmets, that we would be goder parets, repairers of broken things, running into the brokenness. Isaiah ends this chapter in verse 13 and 14 talking about the Sabbath. Let me read these verses. If you turn your back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own way or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He says, I want you to keep the Sabbath. See, the Sabbath was meant to be a day where you cease from your own work and delight in God. You find your joy in him. How are we to view the Sabbath? It's good to have a day of rest, but the New Testament, it's very interesting. It's the one of the Ten Commandments that is not given again. It's the only one. It does say there's a Sabbath day we are to keep or a Sabbath that we can still enter into. But in Colossians chapter 2 It says, let no one be your judge as to a festival day or a Sabbath day, because these are just shadows of the reality. In other words, what God wants for us is not to make sure we keep a day, but that we enter into God's finished work every minute of every day. That we live in the reality of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. That it's a finished work and I don't need to earn his blessing. I have his blessing. And I can live in the reality of his love, and therefore I can be a goader Peretz. I can give my life away to bless others, to run into the brokenness. In other words, what he's saying is find your delight in God. Be a God delighter. <laughs> and you will discover how he delights in you. So the challenge for us is rather than being a rule keeper who is somehow trying to get God's blessing, God longs for us to mature beyond that. To be a people who enjoy the life we've been given in Jesus. To see him as our greatest blessing. And be people who are attractive to this broken world because we are goder parets. We are repairers of broken things. And we are God delighters who find our greatest joy in knowing and loving him. This week, My son and his family are in the Middle East. And my three-year-old granddaughter was in a little prayer meeting. They divided up, and so there were two adults and my three-year-old granddaughter, Ada, in a small prayer group. 
And they were told they were to listen for what God was telling them. And they said, well, Ada, is God speaking to you? And she said, no. (laughs) And the lady who she was with said, well, put my hand on my shoulder if you hear from God. After a while, she put her hand on her shoulder. She said, I heard something. And the lady said, well, what did you hear? said, thanks for living here. So later that night, when her mom, Becca, had been told about it, she said, so did you hear anything from God? She said, yeah. What did you hear? He said, thanks for being here. And then curious, Becca said, and you heard from God. What, what did he sound like? And little Ada said, he sounds like I love you. As we close today, what does God sound like to you? What do you hear when he speaks? Does he sound like, I judge you? I demand of you? I'm waiting for you to get it right? I'm watching you? I'm angry at you? You better keep my rules. If that's what you, what he sounds like to you, then you're not hearing the true God. See, Ada got it exactly right. What God says to you is, thanks for living here. I placed you right where I want you. I am with you. Thanks for walking with me. And what does he sound like? (laughs) He sounds like, I love you. I love you. I died for you. Oh, enter my love for you and my blessing for you. So the question for us this morning is, are we listening? Are we being a rule keeper trying to gain his blessing or are we listening to how he sounds? Because what he sounds like is, I love you. Are we beginning more and more to live out of his love, to be a repairer of what's broken, to be a delighter in God? That's the new name God wants us to have in this world. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we confess to you that we we just so often treat you differently than you really are. We so often try to manipulate you when we don't need to. We, we can receive the gift of life and begin to live in that reality. Oh, Lord, may we in this room, each one of us, be goader perets, be repairers of what's broken. May we live out the new name that you've given us. And may we hear what you sound like when you say, thanks for being here. I love you. Amen.